praise the Lord. Well, are we ready? Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, just as an introduction, you know, when Paul was in Philippi, as many of you probably know, he was uh, with his companions, and he, and, and he ran into this girl who kept following him, if you remember, and saying, you know, this is the, the great men of God who brings to us the way of salvation. And she just kept it up and kept it up because even what she was saying, the interesting part about that story is that it was true, but yet it was demonic. Why? Because she was bringing unwanted attention to the disciples. And so, as you know the story, uh, Paul cast the demon out of this girl and uh, restored her, you know, and set her free. Uh, but the men who had been using this girl, uh, because she was used for divinations, you know, fortune telling and that kind of stuff, she was no longer any use to them for that because she couldn't do it anymore. And so these men uh, were upset because their loss of income. So they stirred up an uproar against Paul and, and his companions. And if you remember, Paul and Silas uh, were arrested. Right away, they were beaten publicly, thrown into prison. But at midnight, the Bible tells us, there was this earthquake. And of course, it also tells us that they sang at midnight. You know, here they were in this dungeon and uh, probably rat infested. And yet, because they were right where God wanted them to be, because wherever you're at, man, if your desire is to do what God has called you to do, then you're doing it, my friends. Now, it might be from a prison cell. But you're doing it. And, and Paul and Silas realized that. And so they began to sing unto the Lord. And so there was this great earthquake. And as you know, uh, the doors of the, of the prison popped open. Well, the jailer, when he saw that the doors were open, uh, you know, he realized, you know, at that moment, thinking that all the prisoners had escaped. And so he was uh, in fear. And so he decided he was just going to commit suicide. So he, he was about to kill himself. But Paul sees him and, of course, hollers at him and says, look, do thyself no harm. We're all still here. Well, as you know, the, the jailer was relieved. And so what did he do? He asked his very iconic question of Paul, what must I do to be saved? And of course, Paul told him very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so Paul preached him the gospel, and, and, and then the jailer takes him home out of sympathy and probably regret for what had happened to him and Silas. And Paul, in turn, preaches the gospel to his family. And so they all get saved. They all become servants of Jesus Christ. You know, the magistrates had uh, heard that Paul was a uh, Roman citizen. Well, this was a problem because Roman citizens uh, were not allowed to be beaten publicly. It was against the law, and it was uh, punishable by some pretty severe uh, punishment as far as the Roman uh, Empire was concerned, if that was to happen. And so him and Silas both actually were Roman citizens. And so when they found out that they had made this graven error, you know, this grievous error, they sent to Paul and said, basically, get out of town. And uh, as you know, Paul told uh, they're from the jailer's house because that's where they were at. He says, no, we're not doing it. He said, if you beat us openly and publicly and illegally. So if you want us to leave, 
you come on down here, and after we hear the apology, you know, you can you can help and show us the way out of town, <laughs> out of town. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy wind up, because that's what happened. The magistrates went down and pretty much invited them to leave. Uh, so they left. You know, they left Philippi, uh, going by the Appian Way, as you know, the Roman road there, uh, moving westward until they came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was and still is a principal city uh, in, in Rome at that time. Of course, uh, it's called Salonica today. It's still an important city in Greece. Uh, this is a place where Paul went into the synagogue, as you remember the story. And for three weeks, it says he reasoned with them out of the scriptures, th- proving to them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And what happened? As so typical with Paul, you know, Paul, when he preaches, two things either happen, or uh, one or two things happen, either a revival or a revolt, sometimes both, and this was a case here, uh, because many of them who heard Paul there in the synagogue believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but many of them did not. And so out of the ones that did not, which is typical, what happened? Well, they raised up a ruckus against Paul and his companions, and, and uh, you know, so they had to leave, and so they wind up, you know, leaving there, and they actually go on their way uh, and making their way down to Berea. And so, uh, of course, Paul shares the gospel in Berea uh, until certain Jews had come down from Thessalonica who followed them, uh, who were once again stirring up, you know, uh, problems for Paul and his companions, and to the point where the point where they had to leave, and they wind up fleeing to Athens. Now. Eventually, uh, Luke, Silas, and Timothy all joined Paul on this journey uh, because Paul, by this time, of course, is headed for uh, Corinth, the city of Corinth. And so he begins to think. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this church in Thessalonica had only been a church for weeks, really, just a handful of weeks. And so they're traveling. They're going from city to city on their way to Corinth, really. And Paul begins to wonder about the church in Thessalonica. So he tells Timothy, he says, hey, go back and see how the brethren are faring, you know. Keep it in mind. Very young church. So, you know, Timothy goes down there, and of course he finds what? He finds the church thriving, growing, and just really staying on course with, with, the, with the Lord. And he's excited. So he comes back and uh, returns to Corinth, of course, where Paul is out, and brings him the news about the church in Thessalonica. Well, you know, and Paul, of course, rejoices in it and, and uh, is just amazed that the Lord is just simply blessing the church there. So when Paul wrote this particular epistle, this First Thessalonians, which many believe is the very first letter that he wrote to all the churches in that area, um, he also, you know, he begins to try to correct something. Now, once again, I want to point this out to you that this church being young, a budding church, had already developed some issues, which is so typical, so typical. And so it, this is a letter of correction, not harsh like maybe Corinthians was, but Paul's trying to gently and lovingly uh, restore some calmness to these people uh, because some of, some of the incorrect doctrine that had you know, cropped up some bad teaching you know, what I particularly love about this epistle is that, you know, when Paul wrote it, 
the main theme, really, of this letter that he stresses here to these guys is about the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, it was prevalent in, in this church. It was prevalent, I believe, at the time of Jesus. You know, there was two things that he really stressed. One was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was almost always central to his gospel, uh, as it should be to anybody who preaches. But Paul also wanted them to be focused on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because, as it says in John, that he who has this blessed hope purifieth himself even as he is pure. You know, I think it's, a, it's not a stretch to say that those who really believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ are those who probably live closer to the Savior than those who don't. When you have people who deny the rapture, or they deny, or they believe in amillennialism, which we're going to be getting into as we get further into this, this epistle, uh, that can tend to lead to, uh, I guess, not really thinking that things are that bad, or maybe they're going to get better. And Because even within the, we call it kingdom theology, there are people who believe that you know, Jesus isn't returning until the Christians have dominion over all the earth, you see. And until that happens, and then we're going to present the earth, you know, prime and ready as a bride to Jesus when he returns, which you have a hard time proving that with Scripture because really Paul is trying to straighten this kind of mindset out even in this epistle when we get to chapters 4 and 5. So once again, from the very first chapter, as we're going to see, pretty much through this entire epistle, you know, Paul is trying to give these believers hope, you know, uh, and and have them rest and have comfort knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back, you know, and, and, and really they believed even in their time. You know, and some people, once again, were, were told, and of course one of Paul's other epistles, that, um, that there would come scoffers walking in the last days, walking after their own lust, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things remain even as they were from the beginning. No doubt, you know, people say, well, you know, Paul believed that that was 2,000 years ago. Yes, but the Bible says that God to God, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is a day. You know, time, God isn't subject, you know, to the space-time continuum as we are. To him, it is nothing but a flash in the pan, if, if it's even considerable. I mean, the fact is, is that we must remember that. So, Paul was preaching that the return of Jesus Christ uh, was imminent. You know, it's believed that this epistle was written between 53 and 54 A.D. Um, Paul had just arrived in Corinth and had started his own ministry there. And according to the scriptures, we read that, you know, Paul, when he was at Corinth, was there for a year and a half. He preached the gospel in the synagogues. Those that believed, he taught. And so he taught them for a year and a half. Uh, which is interesting to me because uh, while he was there, of course, we know this from Acts chapter 18, that the Lord had told him, uh, stay here, don't go anywhere, because I have many people in this, in this area that I'm going to call, uh, which is a whole issue about the election of Christ, which I'm very excited about. So having heard from Timothy, the report from Thessalonica, Paul turns his pen and he wrote this great epistle back 
to the same church. And so we're going to pick it up here in verse 1 when Paul says, Paul and Silas and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts his epistle here uh, with his typical Pauline twins. Some people call it the Siamese twins of the New Testament. But either way, you know, Paul always starts his epistles almost consistently with grace and peace. And of course, it's always in, in that order. And, and you need to realize that because you will never know the peace of God, my friend, until you have received the grace of God, which comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I've always found it interesting when people are on their deathbeds, those who genuinely care about them, who are trying to minister to them, will often ask those people, have you made peace with God? Maybe you've heard people ask that question, have you made peace with God? And really, basically, all they're asking him is, have you been reconciled to God? Are you saved, in other words? You know, as, as, as though that question is the only one that is pertinent. And of course, when you're lying on your deathbed, I guess that it is the only one that matters at the time. But many of us, and maybe you can relate to this, you know, many of us have been Christians for years. And perhaps in the will of God, we might have years to go before we ourselves are laying on that deathbed. But yet, just as the man who is lying on his deathbed is asked, you know, have you made peace with God? Many of us only know the peace with God. That's all we know. You know, uh, to have peace with God is simply to know you are forgiven. But to know the peace of God, and I realize there's some who think that there's no difference, but there is. There's a great difference. To know the peace of God, which is, is to experience the grace of God, which is poured out continually upon all those who are called in Christ Jesus. There's a vast difference between the two. So often people can live their lives as Christians only knowing peace with God. I'm saved. But they're scared to death and otherwise, you know. Uh, they're, they're unfortunately, they're still striving to work harder and to do better, they're, you know, to, to make their relationship with God stronger so that they have some sort of security. So it's a very performance-based relationship. You know, uh, once again, it's more akin to somebody who has a legal contract with someone rather than a loving relationship, which is what God has called us to. But when I became a recipient, when I understood my own wretchedness, when I understood that all I deserve really is hell and eternal torment, that's what we deserve as people. And yet God has poured out uh, his grace and mercy upon my life through his son Jesus Christ, and I have become a joint heir with Christ vicariously made righteous uh, because of Jesus. When I experience that kind of grace, man, that's the stuff that makes me relax and know and experience the peace of God, which Paul says surpasses understanding. You know, there are those of us who, uh, or maybe there's those out there, I should say, 
who look at those of us who simply rest in the finished work of Christ. And sometimes they look at us and think we're crazy. You know, how come you're not worried? How come, you know, because I know in whom I have believed, Paul says. And he is the finisher, the author and the finisher of my faith. I know in whom I believed. I know what he's done. I'm convinced, you know, that he is able to complete in me that thing which he has started. And, and he will. So to rest in the Lord. Look at verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul seems to always make mention of his prayer life uh, in his epistles. And I, and I appreciate that. It's obvious that he was a man of prayer. Uh, prayer is extremely powerful. We were talking about this last Sunday at church. It's extremely powerful. All you need to do is look at the men of God uh, who God used in the New Testament. Look at them. And, and for all that matter, look at the people whom God uses today. And what you find is, you know, one of the things that's endemic in their lives is that they are people of prayer, you know. Uh, but certainly, you know, prayer is the most prominent thing that we need to have expressed in our lives as Christians. I don't think it's a stretch to say that if you were to strive to, to be anything in the body of Christ, um, the one thing that would probably produce the most good, uh, I would argue that it's not preaching, uh, not even teaching or, or prophesying or, or even evangelism. Although those things are necessary, I, I believe, within the body of Christ, the thing that produces the most good, the most power, is the least used, and that's prayer. How often I think it's uh, sad, too, because when something bad happens that seemingly is out of your control, which most things are, let's face it, out of our control, you'll hear people say things like, well, all we can do now is pray, as though that is a last resort. And I'm not picking. I'm just, I've, I've heard it, and God knows that in years past, I'm probably guilty of saying it myself, not realizing the implication of what I'm saying. But I have grown out of that. Now I realize that prayer is your main weapon in this warfare that we have against principalities and powers. And it's our main communication line with God. And so prayer is extremely important. So if you want to do the things that I just mentioned as far as pastoring or ministering, or you're going to have to become and strive to become either a man or a woman that's dedicated to prayer. One of the things I love about Calvary Chapel Newark <clears throat> is that we have a group of people who are dedicated prayer people. They're dedicated. They, they get together. It's a real thing with them. It's a ministry. It's, a, it's something that they are called to do. And I, I treasure that. We are so blessed as a congregation. And I do believe that's why God is blessing us, uh, why we haven't suffered some things that other churches do. Uh, why? Because we have this great group of people that are constantly being lifted up in prayer. And even some within that prayer group have been through tremendous trial and, and, and tribulation, to be honest, uh, in their own personal lives. And yet, what does that produce? That produces a person who's even more dedicated to prayer. 
You know, I've said it before that if I was dying of cancer, I will still preach that God heals cancer. You know, you know, Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Uh, prayer is extremely important, and it does so much good. It's, it's so powerful, and it is so evident in the people who are given to it. So if you're going to do anything uh, in the body of Christ, strive, my friend, to be a person of prayer. Look at verse 3. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. If you're taking notes, you need to make note of this verse. And labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. In the book of Ephesians, Galatians, and Corinthians, Paul makes mention of of three things that he makes mention of here in this very verse. Of course, it's faith, hope, and love. There in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, and now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. You know, so he's constantly linking these three together. They're intrinsically connected, you know. So notice here that Paul said that he was remembering without ceasing their work of faith. Now, when a person has true faith that, according to Ephesians 2.8, is only given by God, there is a work that is a natural result of that faith. In fact, I believe that this is true, that if, if the faith that you claim you have does not affect the life you live, then the faith you say you have is nothing more than a fib. You know, the Bible is very clear in the book of James, the half-brother Jesus wrote, you believe that there's one God. Well, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. You know, it's one thing to say I believe in God. It's another thing to have the faith of God in operation in our lives. It does produce a life that has been totally transformed. You know, when we look at church history, one of the things about uh, Whitfield, George Whitfield, some of you know who he was. He was one of the founders of the Methodist Church, uh, a great Calvinist. And, uh, you know, even the argument that arose between him and John Wesley, one of them was on the issue of salvation and uh, sanctification. Whitfield, rightly so, saw the scriptures and the transformation that happens in the life of a believer as something that happens like that. Now, no doubt the Bible says to grow ye therefore into grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there is that initial transformation. When God enlightens you, when he opens the eyes of your heart that you might know your own wretchedness, that you begin to have the ability then because God has done this work in your life, you know, he's given to every man, that is those who are called to be saved, you know, to have faith, that measure of faith. Once you have that measure of faith, then you're able to seek God. You know, once we come into that born-again experience, it will transform your life. You know, Paul said it was like great scales had fallen from his eyes. Now, no doubt, I'm not suggesting that somebody just goes from being a wretched heathen to uh, coming to Christ and instantaneous maturity in the Lord. Not so. But I'll guarantee you one thing, that if he's had or she has had a genuine born-again experience, you know, that their life will change. It will. 
you, you, you cannot continue in the things. The Holy Spirit is now residing in you, and your life will change. You, there's just no question about that scripturally. So there is that work of faith. Uh, but then there is this labor of love Paul's talking about. The word labor in the Greek is the word kapos. And it, it means to literally toil to weariness, to labor to the point of exhaustion. But when those things which we are laboring for are a labor of love, then we seem to not be concerned with the weariness and the exhaustion that they bring. You know, a great example of this, of course, I think, is a woman giving birth to a child. Though the labor is long. I've heard somebody here recently in our church, I think, had a grandchild, and the labor was long. And is it painful? Well, ask any woman. Yes, it's painful. Is it exhausting? Yes, it's exhausting. It's a lot of work. And yet, one of the most beautiful things about it is when a woman brings forth, when she finally is delivered of that child, the love that she has for that kid, that natural affection that is there, washes all of that previous pain, that previous exhaustion, the labor, all that thing is washed away. And in most cases, within a very short period of time, she willingly seeks another. You know, why? Because of the fruit that it brought. She doesn't focus, because i got to be honest, when, as men, most men, and those of us who have watched our wives have babies, we would, we would probably say, no, thank you. One is sufficient. <laughs> you know, if I survived that. Women are nothing like that. And I think that it is a great example of the life of a believer who, once he comes or she comes to Christ, whose life now is dedicated to the things of God, servitude, you know, uh, striving, even to the point of exhaustion. But yet, because it's a, a labor of love, you know, it's motivated by our love for Christ. You know, Paul said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. Because it's that kind of labor, well, once do we see the fruit of it, then we gladly seek more of it. Not to do anything other than just to show our gratitude for the one who has done so much for us. It really is that simple. You know, then when our love of God is such, we too do not consider, like I said, the weariness of our bodies. Paul said, it's the love of Christ, as I said before, which constrains me. It's our love of Jesus that causes us to labor. This genuinely the only motivation, really, that God accepts. Um, man, if you're toiling and you're trying to earn God's favor, um, yeah. There were people like that in Matthew chapter 7. I encourage you to go back and read it. I don't have time for that tonight, but, you know, these were people who toiled for God. And yet, go back and read what Jesus says about them. You know... Paul says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and, and have not charity or love, it profits me nothing. So there's that labor of love, as I said, but then there is this patience of hope. 
you know, which is a cure, really, for the weariness of our labors. You know, it's the presence and the patience of waiting uh, on the Lord. You know, in the book of Isaiah, you know, he said, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. So learn to be patient, my friends. You know, wait upon the Lord. Look at verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. My, If you are taking notes tonight, you need to underline this. Highlight it. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I want you to take note that these are brand new believers, as I mentioned when we started this study. They're brand new believers, weeks old in the Lord. And one of the first doctrines that Paul begins to teach them is the doctrine of divine election. Oh, that we had pastors today that would take this seriously. Because so many Christians are so ignorant of the election of God, and it causes them great pain to not understand it. Some pastors see it as a problem. Thus, many pastors do not broach this theological doctrine with brand new believers, as Paul's doing here, because they see it as a conundrum. But in reality, it is not. Paul wanted these new believers to know the reason that they had a work of faith in their life, a labor of love in their life, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. He wanted them to know that it was solely because they were of the election of God. You were elected. God has chosen you. Therefore, you're able to do all these things that God has empowered you by his sovereign will and power to do. In fact, Paul said he wanted them to know their election of God. But the fact is, my friends, that God does choose. And so many people have a problem with that. You can complain. You can kick. You can scream. You can say that ain't fair. But God is God. And the Apostle Paul said, who are you, old man, to rail against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? In the book of Ephesians, there in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I heard Pastor Chuck explain it one time by saying that As people, we freely choose in our lives those who we want to be our companions in life. We freely choose those who are going to be our friends, those with whom we want to spend time. If we have that right, God is much greater. And he has that right to choose too. Ultimately, even more superior than our right, obviously. Frankly, I have no problem uh, personally with the election of God. I embrace it. I'm glad. I'm only glad he chose me, as I've heard Pastor Chuck say a million times. Jesus told his own disciples, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. So Paul repeated the doctrine Uh, of divine election throughout 
most of his epistles. He mentions it all the time. Now, there are those who wish to argue uh, the doctrine of divine election, but they argue it from the position of foreknowledge. God only chose you because he saw through time, you see, that you would eventually choose him. Okay? So therefore, God chose you. It's, it's called election by foreknowledge. And there's many, many people who adhere to that. God chooses, uh, you know, because of their foreknowledge. They just believe it. They're convinced of it. The problem with God's election, according to his foreknowledge, which he obviously has, I mean, if he didn't, he wouldn't be God, right? Is that it is inconsistent with the nature of mankind. That is, we are told from the very beginning there in Genesis 8, 21, that a man's heart is evil when? From his youth. The prophet Jeremiah reiterated this human condition uh, which we all suffer coming into this world when he said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Man's nature is a sinful nature, my friends, outside of God, and therefore renders him incapable of even seeking God, let alone choosing God. This is critically, or crystal clear, really, in in the book of Romans in chapter 3, when Paul said, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. I've heard guys argue this, and I always ask them, what part of none don't you understand? It's like somebody arguing whether or not we saved, are saved eternally. And I always take them to John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed on him would not perish but have everlasting life. What part of everlasting don't you understand? Listen, God uses particular words and he has delivered them to us for a particular reason because they mean a particular thing. Not arbitrary. The word none means none. So in order to maintain the view that God elects those whom he has chosen based solely on his foreknowledge, is to grant more power to man than he possesses. You see, men are born sinners. We sin because of our sin nature. Thus we do according to that which our nature dictates. Those who adhere to the foreknowledge position argue that it is because man has free will that he has the ability to choose. That's why he can do it, they say. That God was or has created all of mankind as a free moral agent. Now, I want you to think about that when you hear that term applied to a man who is not born again, a free moral agent. The scriptures are clear that man is wicked continually and that from his birth. Therefore, he is devoid of moral or the ability. And yet, They throw this out, and they're talking about people who are pre-saved, you know, prior to salvation. Call them free moral agents. Just, you know, most Bible teachers do agree, whether they are, you know, of that position or not. 
that before a man is born again, he comes into this world as a triune being. They don't, they don't argue this. When you were born into this, this world, my friend, you were born body, soul, and spirit. We understand that. An inferior trinity to God's superior trinity, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the point is, is that you're born body, soul, and spirit in that order. Thus, you do by nature the things that your bodily appetites dictate. And according to God, these are nothing but evil from your youth. Thus, the scripture teaches us that because of our sinful nature, which we walked in before we knew Christ, we were, he says, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. Simply to say that man has free will does not resolve the problem of this teaching. It really only complicates it. Because if man has the ability outside of God to choose God, which is contrary to his nature, Romans chapter 3, then not only is the doctrine of election according to God's foreknowledge inconsistent with Scripture, but it lies in direct contradiction to it. Thus we understand that God has chosen, elected, not based upon his foreknowledge, which he obviously has, as I said, but really based upon his sovereign decree. In Ephesians 1, 4, 5, Paul Apostle, he wrote, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Christ Jesus, to himself according to the good will or good pleasure of his will. So prior to our salvation, mankind exercises his free will. He does have free will, but his free will is confined to his nature, not unlike the animal kingdom. I remember hearing Pastor Chuck say that, you know, in the beginning, when, when man is simply body, soul, and spirit, He's little different than the animal kingdom. I would agree with him on that. Because man is fallen. His nature has been corrupted. His spirit is dead. He has no spirit that is alive. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus is a quickening, made alive. He is a quickening spirit. You know, I've often said it a million times that, you know, God did not send Jesus to here to make bad men good. He sent him here to make dead men alive. And when that happens, well, then you are chosen. You are elected by God and enlightened. And then and only then will you seek God. But you will do according to your nature what your nature dictates. That's my point. You know, a dog can be nothing more than a dog. Now, we have a dog. We love our dog, and unfortunately, we infantilize our dog. That's just what we do. Why? Because we love our dog. We infantilize that puppy, and we talk about it in human terms even. We talk about how she loves us and how we love her, and we put human terms upon it. But let's face it, in her nature, 
by her instinct, she is still nothing more than a quadruped. She's a dog. So it is, my friends, with an unregenerated man. Until God opens the eyes of his understanding to see his own wretchedness, to come to grips with his own extreme sinfulness, he cannot know or receive the things of God, nor is it within his nature to seek them. Thus a man is special in this respect that if you are in Christ, it is only because God has enlightened your heart and given you the ability to seek him and his forgiveness. As the scriptures say, he has given to every man those whom he has called the measure of faith. It is my contention that this view of election is in reality the only one that is consistent with not only the nature of man, but the nature of God. Well, read ahead, my friends. This gets better and better. Next week is Thanksgiving. This Sunday, we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving and how God has called us to that. But before we close tonight, I want to ask you, my friend. You know, so often I've heard people say, well, then when they hear me teach on the issue of divine election, Well, how do I know that I am the elect? My answer is simple. Do you want to be? Do you care? You know, my friend, listen to me. God will never force anybody to do anything. You're not a robot. Those who talk about divine election as though God is simply making robots does not understand the doctrine. It's not true at all. The fact is, is that If you have a desire for the things of God, then it is absolutely, (laughs) I believe, within the probability that you are part of the elect. And so if you have a hinkling, if you're listening to this sermon by radio, maybe you've been, God's been knocking on your door all your life. You can think back from the time that you were a kid and the discussions that would come up, the things that you care about, uh, even though maybe it never never prodded you to really seek God, but yet you thought about God. You The, the wooing of the Holy Spirit is what we call that. My friend, if you care, I would tell you, look around. Time is growing short. This is what this great epistle was written about. Time is growing short. And now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Listen, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never accepted the free gift of salvation, which is through Jesus Christ, I implore you, I beg with you, you know, in Jesus' stead, be reconciled to God. Quit playing games. You cannot play games with God if you care, my friends. If, it, if the thought is even in your mind, then man, say that prayer. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. It really is just that simple. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not profound. And the difference that it will make, not only in the life to come, but in the life you're living now, I guarantee will be extraordinary. So do it today. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we just thank you. Lord, we pray for those who 
you have called. And Lord, we ask and that you would simply let them come to the acknowledging of the truth. Pour out your spirit upon your people, Lord Father, and bless them. We love you, we thank you, and we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, until next time, my friends, the Lord bless you, and I'll see you either in the air or I'll see you there at Calvary Chapel, Newark, come Sunday. God bless.